Well, we're, we're back into Romans. Romans, and we are in the home stretch. Some of you started with the series all the way back in chapter one, and one of the hallmarks of Fox Valley Church, right, is that we want to study books of the Bible, not only topics, but we want to see what God is writing in these letters to us. And so when we think about Romans, let me just bring us into what I want to capture as a big thing. The Apostle Paul by the power of the Holy Spirit, painted a picture for you and me of the awesomeness of our great God. He just splashed the canvas with all kinds of paint to try to give to us a picture, not only of who God is, but what God is doing in the world. And all the awesome things that come to us because of who God is and what he is doing. And of course, chief among all that God is doing and has done for us and will do for us is tied to what we call the good news or the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's why very quickly in the letter, chapter 1, verse 16, we kind of capture what we want to say with this verse. Paul says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of this good news. Why? Because it's the power of God. It's how God broke into this world to bring a message of deliverance for all of us, right? It's for salvation. That's what I mean by deliverance to everyone who believes. Everyone who believes, right? It doesn't matter from what country you're from. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter how young you are. It doesn't matter how talented you are. It doesn't matter how smart you are. God wants to deliver all of us from the power and the penalty of sin. So it's salvation for everyone who believes. And then, of course, because it's written to the church at Rome, it says to the Jew first because it's tied to the Old Testament. From Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, all the way to the last book of the Bible, Malachi, right to the Jews, God was painting this picture. But it's in the New Testament where we get such incredible clarity. So in the Old Testament, we got all these pointers pushing us to this one that God had promised, the Messiah. And then it's in the New Testament where God begins to show us in detail. And of course, the letter to the church at Rome gives us the full, clean picture. Now, let me just say, too, what happens in the book of Romans, or in this letter written to the churches at Rome, was not only was it this great picture, but this picture had all kinds of color to it, all kinds of colors so that you and I would understand with the greatest clarity and the greatest amount of confidence what it is that is the problem in this world. Now, today, many writers, or some writers, are starting to use the phrase, and I think it will catch on, that this now is the age of anxiety. More and more people are being filled with anxiety. And with this anxiety comes fear. 
And with this fear comes confusion. And we could start to say that part of the reason there is so much anxiety, so much confusion, so much fear is exactly what Romans says, is that this world is broken. And right now it is built with crooked timber. And when you try to build a house with crooked timber, guess what you get? a crooked house. It gets messy very, very quickly. Romans gives us an explanation for all of the evil in the world, all of the suffering in the world, all of the pain in the world, all of the brokenness in this world. Romans brings a light into all of these kinds of things. So I don't just use words like pain and suffering. Let's get down to the details. It's Romans that helps us understand why there is so much cancer in the world. It's Romans that helps us understand why death is here. It's Romans that helps us understand why we have so many psychological problems. It's Romans that helps us understand why there is so much splintering of families. Romans helps us understand why its communities are blowing apart. It's Romans that helps us understand why racism is rampant around the globe. It's Romans that helps us understand that even though all the problems I just listed are severe, it's Romans that helps us understand that the number one problem that any human being faces is that we are under the wrath of God because we have rebelled against him. And our rebellion shows in all kinds of pride, all kinds of choices that we make that are contrary to the will and ways of God. Romans brings us there, but then Romans gives us the greatest and only solution. That is the good news of Jesus Christ. That Jesus, he stood between you and me and a holy God, and he took on all the wrath of God so that we could be delivered from sin. And it's this rebellion, it's this rebellion that broke fellowship with God, and now God wants to restore it through Jesus Christ. Well, we read this, so we find in Romans chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, we find the solution with the greatest clarity of what Jesus did so that we would be out from the wrath of God and we could begin to be taken out of the power of sin and the penalty of sin, delivered once and for all, for all eternity, through Jesus Christ. It's in chapters 5 through 8 that we begin to see that we have the Spirit and the power of the Spirit. So if we begin, this is the age of the Spirit in the Bible, in the letter to Rome, it's saying that this is the age of the Spirit. And with the age of the Spirit comes power and freedom and deliverance and joy and peace and all these other things that God wants to begin now bestowing upon us. He then, in chapters 9 to 11, begins to lay out what happens to the Jews, the nation of Israel. But when we turn the corner into chapter 12, what God wanted to do for you and me, he wanted to show us how the gospel makes a difference in everyday life. He wants you and me to understand how we are to live 
in light of the day in which we live in the Spirit. So it's about relationships, that relationships matter. So if I could just do a quick rehearsal here, we begin in chapter 12 and tied very tightly to what Adam has been sharing the last couple of weeks. Paul writes in chapter 12, verse 1, he says, I urge you therefore by the mercies of God to present your body as a living sacrifice. Or as Adam talked about, to clothe yourselves, right? With, with the righteousness of Christ. To put on some new things. And then he starts talking about how we are to treat one another. That we are to treat one another with honor and respect. We're, we're, we're to care for one another. And that's why we want a church. That's why a lot of you are here. It's you want to get away from all the destructive stuff out in the world, and you want a place of love. You want a place where people genuinely care, where people are honest, where people are sincere. And we're not saying the church is perfect, but what we're saying is that's how God wants us to live in light of the gospel and in light of the Holy Spirit. Then he says, well, here's how you're to treat your enemies. Once you become a living sacrifice, you don't fight. God fights for you. And he says, love your enemies. And of course, that's tied to the message that Jesus taught in Matthew, in his sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7, right? He's telling us to love our enemies, to pray for them. And Paul says, if the gospel is powerful, and since it is, we should be living differently and not like the world, but we should be living and loving our enemies. He then went on and said, here's the relationship between the church and government or the church and state. That starts in chapter 13, that we need to be careful how we think about government. Then he went on and talked about the Mosaic law, that the law is bringing us to a place to love our neighbor, right? And Jesus said the whole law the Mosaic law is summed up in two points. I love the way Jesus teaches. It's always so simple. Two points, love God and love your neighbor. Romans chapter 13, right? That's what he's talking about with the law. Love your neighbor. Care for those people around you. And then he brings us to the return of Christ. And I, he only took a couple verses to talk about this, but the, the, the return of Christ fills us with hope because we are to be awake and alive to the truth that Jesus is coming back. Now, this is a great time to say amen. Maybe a little louder. There's a great time to say Amen. Why? Because he's coming back. And when he comes back, everything is going to be reordered. All that crooked timber is going to be gone. All of the new colors that are brought are going to be bright, and the light is going to be clear. And Jesus wants us to be awake and sober, it says at the end of chapter 13. Well, this morning we turn into chapter 14, and he's going to talk about, and can you imagine this, a division in the church. Have you ever heard? I mean, in your whole life, have you ever heard of divisiveness in a church? I mean, we probably can't even fathom it, but it happens. Take it by faith if you haven't seen it. I remember very early in my ministry, I wasn't even a pastor yet. Kathy and I went to a church, and it was in division. They couldn't get along. You know what they did? 
half the church went this way and the other half went the other way. So easy to do. But there's another way and it's the way of Romans. So if you have your Bible and you got the Spirit, you've got the mind of Christ, let's open up to Romans chapter 14. Now if you're able to stand, could I invite you to stand I'm going to read just a few verses, verses 1 to 12, Romans 14. The Apostle Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he penned these words, except the one who, whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than another, another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God, and whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether you, we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he, he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow. Every tongue will acknowledge God. So then, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. So Father, we take these words, we ask that you would speak with clarity and confidence in your still small but solid voice into the hearts of everyone here. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may grab a seat. Now, as we, we look at all these things, Paul lays out, first of all, what to do, right? He, he, he lays it out. But what I want to do is before we look at what Paul says what to do, I want to show you the foundation of why we do what we do. Because that's what Paul did. He didn't want these readers in the first century in the church at Rome to merely change their behavior. He wanted them to understand why. This is a good time to just pause. If you're a mom or a dad, if you're a grandparent, can I just say, one of the worst things you can do is to tell your kids to do something because you are the authority. What our kids need, if you name the name of Jesus, is to understand why you're asking them to do it. And that should always be tied. Let me be really clear. That should always be tied to the character of God. 
We are asking our kids, bringing our kids along to follow a person, the person of Jesus Christ. And they need to understand who this God is. And God's character is always one to provide the very best and protect you. So our children, our grandchildren, need to understand that when God says don't do something, it's because he wants to provide something better. And he wants to protect you from those things that will harm you. This is the very character of God. He is a God of love. So as we discipline moms and dads, tie it to the character of God. And when you are out of line, be first to confess. Forgive me. Forgive me, your dad. Forgive me, your mom, for how I have behaved. Well, let me bring me in, us into our first point. Jesus is showing us that he is Lord and he is judge over all Christians. That's who he is. That's what he's telling us this morning, is he wants us to understand why he's giving us the directions. He wants us to understand the foundation for our new behavior, and it's because he's the boss, that's what we mean by Lord, and you're not. <laughs> that's a good starting point, isn't it? We get that confused. We think we get to decide all these different things. And God says, wait a minute, wait a minute. I made you, you didn't make me. I'm the creator, you're the created one. That's what we mean by Lord. Jesus is Lord, right? That, that, that's where he takes us in verses three through nine. There's these foundational truths that we need to see. First, God says he has accepted them, verse three. That is, he accepted the weak and the strong, let me say it the way the Bible says, the weak in faith and the strong in faith. Now we're going to get down into the details of exactly what that means in a moment. But let me just say in verse 3 it becomes really clear. God is telling you and me that he has accepted them. Now because of what I've already said, you know why he's accepted them. It's the acceptance is based on the gospel of Jesus Christ. That he paid the penalty for our sin, and now he accepts us on the basis of the death, well, let me start with the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, let me just say, this word accepted isn't what our culture sometimes does. Our, our culture sometimes just gives this little uh, nod, like, 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 you're cool, I accept you. Or our, our, our culture will, will put it into a, a structural acceptance. Yep, you're a Christian, I accept you. That's not what the word accept here means. The word accept here means to embrace or to bring them into the inner circle. The family circle. Later on, we're going to see that we're called in verse 10, brothers and sisters. We're in a family in the church, and God has accepted us. He has brought the strong in faith and the weak in faith into his family. That's what it means when I say he's Lord. Only he could do this. 
Then it says in verse 4, who are you to judge another servant? Right? Isn't that exactly what it says in verse 4? Who are you to judge the one who does, or or I missed a phrase here, who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own masters, servants stand or fall. And they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. He's Lord, he's the boss, he's all-powerful, and he brings in this idea of judge. Who are you to judge another servant? And yet the church, Christians, feel it's within their right to make judgments. And we'll explore that a little deeper in a moment. We are to live, it says in verse 8. We live for the Lord, we die for the Lord, we belong to the Lord's, to the Lord. Everyone will bow to the Lord. He is the Lord. So the church sometimes forgets that we're family and that they are part of brothers and sisters and we need to accept them. Why do we accept them? Because God accepted them. See how it's tied to God. It's tied because God has done something for them. He loves them. He sent his son to die on the cross for them. He has brought us into his inner circle. He has adopted us as his children. He has sealed us by the power of the Spirit in this relationship. He established a new covenant relationship in his blood. All of these things are tied together. Yes, Jesus is Lord and judge over all Christians, and Paul wanted to give this foundational position very early. But let me hit my second point. The strong and the weak Christians need to accept one another. Now, this is important because Paul could have said what we often do in our culture. Hey, you don't like traditional music? We got a contemporary service. If Go there. Or go over here to this traditional service. Oh, you like your music loud? Yeah, we have a service for you. Let, let's just start dividing everybody up. The New Testament has a very different vision. It wants to bring family members together, which means we need to die to ourselves and die to our things. But now let's let's get a better, clearer picture of what's happening in Rome. In Rome, there were house churches, lots of them. No mega church. It wasn't like there was a gathering of a, a, a church building of thousands of people. No, there were house churches but they all understood that they were under one bishop, one, one, one leader in the church in Rome. But in some of the churches, there were converts from Judaism. They saw the beauty and the greatness of the promised Messiah being fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And, and so when they read from Genesis to Malachi, they'd say, yeah, Jesus is the one. And they turned from Judaism to Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to give you another word that sometimes you come across in the New Testament, and it's God-fearers. God-fearers are people that are Gentiles that converted to Judaism. And now they begin to see, hey, I've been studying the Old Testament. Jesus is the Messiah. So they're kind of in the same camp as the Jews, except they're ethnically not Jews. And then there are Gentiles. And the majority of the people, as we've studied Rome, the letter to the Romans, 
they've been Gentiles. And so that's who is there. And, And there's these divisive issues. And the divisive issues become really, really clear, right? There are the weak. So let's start with with the weak as we think about the weak here or the divisive issues. It's that the strong are not to treat the weak with contempt. The strong are not to treat the weak with contempt. That's what it says in verse 3a. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, right? So there's this pull here that the one who is considered strong in faith can eat everything. Well, then the other side of it is that the weak are not to judge the strong. That's what it says in chapter 14, verse 10, the beginning of it, right? It, It says that you then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Why do you treat them with contempt? He's bringing them both together. Is it the strong are not to look down or despise the weak. The weak are not supposed to look and judge the strong. So who are these people? Who are they? Well, let's look at the weak first. Who are the weak? The weak are faith-filled Christians. You say, wait a minute. I thought they were weak in faith. No, they, they had faith. Now, very differently than other letters that we get, like the letters to the Galatians, is sometimes Christians begin to pervert the gospel. That you're not delivered from sin by grace alone. You've got to do something. You've got to earn favor with God. These Christians weren't there. They believed the gospel. They knew they were delivered from the power and penalty of sin by Christ alone. What they didn't know was, what do I do with the Old Testament regulations? And so some of the regulations controlled the food you ate. It controlled the days you worshipped. And we'll find out later on in chapter 14 next week that they weren't supposed to drink wine either, right? So these regulations were getting in the way. And so the weak ones are faith-filled Christians whose weakness is they missed the full impact of the gospel of Christ or Christ's work in his life, death, and resurrection. So they saw the gospel but they didn't see how it changed their lives. Do you see? Do you see how the gospel, the good news, changes your life? Well, the strong, who are they? Well, they're faith-filled Christians. They embraced the full impact of the gospel. And that's a beautiful thing because the gospel is about freedom and we love freedom. We love our liberty. Now to bring you in a little deeper, I can remember a couple times when I felt overwhelmingly free. First time, I'm 19 years old and I go skydiving. 
Now, this is long before the day when you, you do tandem with a professional diver. This is the day when you went up in a plane and they shoved you out. <laughs> so here I am, I'm in the plane, we're at about five to 6,000 feet, and I get shoved out. I remember when the chute opened and floating down, the plane's gone and the silence, and I felt free overwhelmingly free. It was powerful. Another time, I was diving in the Pacific Ocean, scuba diving, and I remember, you know, when you get that balance just right between uh, your weight belt and the uh, tank, or the, not the tanks, but the air uh, the vest, the air vest, is you want to just be able to float without sinking or without going up. And I got in this perfect equilibrium state. And I remember just rolling around, looking in this blue water, the fish, oh, it was gorgeous. And I felt so free. Now, some of you might not be able to relate with that, but here's something you can relate to. The open road. I remember I graduated from college. I got my car. I had a Pontiac Sunbird. I mean, what a dump of a car. But I, I got all my earthly possessions in that car, and I was going to hit the road. And I start driving south to Houston. And I remember I was in February. It was cold up north, but as I started driving south and I dropped those windows and the air's blowing and I'm driving down the interstate, I felt free. That's what the gospel does. The gospel gives you a breath of fresh air. It gives you freedom. And what happens in the church is that people want to steal your freedom. And they start to judge your freedom. They look at the house you live in. They say, whoa, if you're a Christian, you shouldn't be in that house. Or you make too much money. Or how you spend your money. Or the clothes you wear. It's none of their business what you do. It's none of their business. A servant stands or falls before the Lord who's their judge. But somehow the church thinks that it's their business to start deciding whether a tattoo is right, whether a piercing is appropriate, whether all these other things that we do today, all these external things. And the gospel comes in and says, you have been liberated. And then Christians want to come in and start putting shackles on you. And that's what's going on here, is that some of them were saying, no, you shouldn't eat this meat. No, you shouldn't celebrate on this day. No, you shouldn't drink wine. And Paul is saying, wait a minute. There's the gospel. And so we'll go deeper next time, but the gospel sets us free. It says in John chapter 8, verse 36, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. It's for by grace that you have been saved, right? You, you didn't earn this. This is what freedom is all about. And people want to rob you of your freedom. So let me say it this way as it's been so often said. In the essentials, unity. In the non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. There are some things that God calls us to do, and we need to rally around those things, unity. There's some things that are non-essentials, like I just mentioned, and we need to have 
freedom. But in all things, we got to love. So why is it that people don't get along? Let me just move us to the final question. First of all, we forget that God is Lord and Judge. I'm sorry, that spot is taken. So you don't get that chair. And we need to remind ourselves of that. And secondly, we lack insight. We don't get along so often. You know what the division was in the church that we went to when I first was talking about this, about the church that split? They split over the word discipleship and what it means and how to live it out. We can lack insight into the freedom of Christ. Well, can I just say, when that stone was rolled away, when that stone was rolled away, it opened up a whole new way of living, a whole new way of life, and it's in the freedom and joy of the gospel. And next week, we're going to pick up even deeper where this went in the church at Rome. Father, thank you. Thank you that we're on a journey and we're coming home. But thank you that that stone rolled away. Thank you for the truth of those words that when Jesus rose from the dead, he broke the power of sin. He broke the penalty of sin. Sin and death destroyed, shattered. And there's a homecoming. God, help us remember that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.